I'm Adrian Jones, and this is Profound Awesomeness. Meet Denise Redeker, wife, mother, and proud owner of a new heart. Hear about how she found out about her condition and how she initially responded to that diagnosis. Learn what it's like to be a donor recipient. If you want to learn more about Denise's passionate work with donor recipients, please check out the Heartfelt Help Foundation. I'm excited to welcome Denise to our show. Denise has got quite a story to share for our profound awesomeness listeners, and I'm thrilled to jump into it with you, Denise. Thank you for joining us here today. We're excited to have you. Gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And it's an honor for us to have you share your story with us. It's quite a story, and I think we should just jump right into it if you don't mind. I I think your story on so many levels begins with your heart. And and so much blossoms from that. So let's get into the history of your heart journey and, and growing up with your condition. And I don't want to spoil anything. So I'm going to hand it over to you to tell us about your, your experiences with your heart. Well, I actually never didn't actually have a, a diagnosis for my um, heart problem until I delivered my son, which now is 28 years ago. And my father-in-law, who is was, he just passed away in January, was a liver specialist. And he walked in and looked at my EKG after I had delivered my son and said, that's not right. That something's wrong there. So he credits, he will credit himself and I credit him with my diagnosis. Because of the time that it was found, it was labeled as postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is just a lot of words to say a viral infection of the heart that they've caught after you give birth. Now, looking back, everyone on my father's side of the family died of a massive heart heart attack or heart-related issue with one exception. And now me, I'm an exception too, at a very young age. So my general feeling is that my problem is congenital, that I had a congenital heart problem that just went unnoticed until I was 29. And you had to wait until you gave birth. So as you say, you had family members who were dying at youngish ages. Mm -hmm. And then when you were younger, that wasn't a thing. It wasn't brought to your attention that maybe this is an issue. It's congenital and something we need to watch out for. No, which has made me a huge proponent of now kids should get screened. Kids, kids and high school athletes should get screened for heart problems as just a matter of routine. I always wonder what would have happened if my heart problem had been caught earlier. It may have changed something. It may not have changed anything, but it would be, I I think that knowledge is power in almost every situation. And especially when it comes to your health. Yeah. And I can 100% agree with what you're saying. After my heart attack, I went and found my biological family and found out that heart disease runs like a serial killer in the maternal line of my family. I found out at age 47 years old, I don't know what I would have done as a young me if someone had told me that heart disease runs in the family, but I'd like to think I might've been more aware and made different lifestyle decisions, perhaps. Who knows? I, I, uh, I mean, you can't really go back and look, 
back, you know, and wish for something different. But I, for this generation of kids and future generations of kids, knowledge is power. If you know that you've got um, a predisposition for heart disease in your family, get yourself checked. It's better to know and better to address those issues um, as best you can now, rather than wait until it's too late. Yeah, I agree. I, you're speaking to the choir on that one with me, I'm all on board, just not only as, as you may know, just how I live, but some of the, the organizations that I support that do support heart screens for high school aged athletes and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So you're, you just gave birth, you're a young mother and you are given this diagnosis. What was yeah. that like? In all honesty, I heard the words postpartum cardiomyopathy. I felt largely fine. I had just given birth. I had I had things that were more important to me to do than to focus on my health. Looking back, that was probably not the best decision, but it was the decision I made at the time. I'm a good patient, so I went to the cardiologist and they did a workup on me and said, yes, your heart looks like this diagnosis fits. They prescribed some um, medications, which I dutifully took, but it didn't run or rule my life. I had a baby to raise and then a toddler to raise and and I had a life to live. So it didn't run me. I I kind of ran it. I paid almost no attention to it in the grand scheme of things until it became impossible for me to ignore. And when did it become impossible to ignore? What was happening within you with your, your cardiovascular system? What was going on? Well, the first trigger was when my son was in junior high school and I went in for my regular cardiacs every, every year checkup and they ran a new battery of tests as they do. And the cardiologist brought me and my husband, never a good sign, into his office and said, you need to have a pacemaker defibrillator implanted like yesterday. Your heart is failing and you are at risk of sudden cardiac death without it. And me being the stubborn patient that I, stubborn but good patient that I am, I was like, all right, But it was right before Easter vacation at his school, at my son's school. And I was like, we're not doing this now. We're going to wait until Easter vacation. And it was over and my son's back in school. And my cardiologist was just, I remember, I remember him being astounded that I was pushing back on this. And I was like, no, we're not going to do this. He wanted to, he wanted to admit me to the hospital that day. And I pushed back on it and said, we're just going to wait until after um, spring break. And then it's fine. Schedule my admission for a week and a half from now. It's totally fine. And so we did. And I got my first pacemaker defibrillator implanted and ended up with a long recovery. And that was kind of my first wake up call that, hey, there's something actually serious going on. But then I recovered and went back to life kind of as normal. So my second wake up call was 
when my son was in, oh, his last year of college, I guess. So that would have been 2014. And all of a sudden I started getting more ventricular tachycardia storms. And my defibrillator would go off. And if you haven't ever felt implanted defibrillator go off, it drops you to your knees and it, it feels, they tell you it feels like a donkey kicking you in the chest and they're not lying. It's exactly what it feels like. It drops you to your knees. It is, it is something. And my defibrillator started to go off more often. And I started, ended up, I ended up in the hospital for a few days a week while they adjusted things and did some testing. I actually got recalled. My pacemaker, one of the wires got recalled. So I had to have the whole thing replaced. And I became a professional patient, for lack of a better term. I was was in the doctor's office or in the hospital more and more frequently. And then it became the word, the word transplant started getting bandied about a little more frequently. But the balance between the good patient in me and the denial person, denialist in me, was like, well, that's going to happen to somebody else. That's not going to happen to me. We're going to fix this. And I was doing everything right, according to the book. You know, I was doing as much exercise as my failing heart could handle. I was eating well. I was trying to minimize my stress level, all the things they tell you to do. And for a hot minute, I even graduated out of the heart failure department of my health plan and got to go back to a regular cardiologist. And that was great and lasted for probably four or five months. And then the VTAC storm started coming back and I went back to the heart failure department. And that was when they sat me down in December of 2017 and said, we've done everything we can do for you medically. And without a transplant, you've maybe got a year, maybe two, not great years left. And It was like hearing those words for the first time, even though I've heard the word transplant bandied about having a, a limit, a deadline. I'm not quite sure of the right word, but I put on your life where it's like, oh, oh, without this, you've got a year or two left at best was finally when I was like, holy crap, this is actually going to happen to me. It just got real. Yeah, it all got real really fast. And I had a holy crap moment. I am a person of faith. I just, God and I had huge arm wrestling matches over how is this fair? I, you know, I got, I've got too much to do left. And then, right, we were going to start the workup for transplant, which there's a lot involved for the workup for transplant. You have to have, you have to be healthy enough to survive a transplant. And in order for them to determine that, they run all the tests. They want to make sure you don't have cancer, you don't have any kidney disease, you don't have any liver disease, you don't have anything else going on in your body that could affect the recovery from the transplant. So there's a whole bunch of testing and they had planned on starting that right after the first of the year. Unfortunately, my heart had different ideas. And I had a massive VTEC storm right after the first of the year, 2018. 
And that sent me to the hospital and I got transferred from my local hospital here in Sonoma County to Santa Clara and ultimately to Stanford, where I was told that I wasn't going to be discharged until I got a new heart. I was too unstable and too at risk of a sudden cardiac death to discharge. Wow. And so I've got to dive into this. This is fascinating. So when you going back to that spring break back, I think in 2014, you said, right. And your cardiologist said, well, you need a pacemaker. We've got to do this right away. And you said, nope, not during my vacation. We're going to deal with this later. That didn't set you back. It sounds like you had a fierce warrior mentality. Like, you know, my body's not going to slow me down. I can still go forward, still move forward and not be brought down by limitations of my body. Is that fair to say, or was something else going on? That, well, I, I think, I think that's the majority of it. I think there was a lot of denial, just straight up. Nope. (laughs) I'm not facing that. That's a monster. I'm not going to face today. There's a lot of that going on, but there is a lot of, I've got things to do. And I think, I think moms, dads, can relate. You've got a kid who's relying on you to get him to soccer practice. You've got a kid that's, that's relying on you to help with homework. That's, you know, you've got PTA meetings to attend. You've got, I was volunteering. I was actually working at our church and I had things I had to do for that. I volunteer, I volunteer and coordinate a fundraiser every year for our local rescue mission up in Santa Rosa. And I had things to do for that. And I had things to do. And so when you're focused on the things you have to do, the next steps that you have to do, you don't really have time to focus, or at least you can choose not to focus on the maybes out there, the what ifs. And it's just... I I never, I always have known that it's just not healthy to live on the what if, which by that, I mean, being on the, the bus of what if this happens? What if that happens? What if the other thing happens? That's not a healthy mental place for anybody to hang out. We all, we all visit that spot if we're dealing with chronic illness, but it's not a healthy place to live. That's great wisdom. That's really, really great wisdom. Did you, were you on the what if bus when you were told you had one to two years left with your natural heart? I visited there for sure. I visited the what if bus for sure. And and I think that's where I spent a lot of time arm wrestling with God about, okay, why, why now? Why me? Why this? But in retrospect, the merciful thing that happened to me was that I had this VTAC storm so soon after I got this news because it was less than two weeks, about 10 days after I got this news that I ended up in the hospital being told that I wasn't going to be able to be discharged until I got my transplant. I didn't have time to sit and process and stew and deal with because I was already in the next, I I was already in the next phase of things. There wasn't a year or six months for me to dwell on the what ifs and what happens next and how do we deal with this? A lot of people, when they are waiting for a heart transplant, they're waiting for months and months, sometimes years. And the mercy that I was given was that I waited about three weeks. Wow. 
That's, um, that's really fast. And I wanted to ask you, do do heart transplant people, people who are waiting for heart transplants, I mean, I guess it's possible that they they don't live to see their next heart, right? I mean, that's got to be a tragedy with this community. And is that super prevalent? It's there is, and I should have done my research because I know the updated numbers just came out, but it's about 40 or 50 people die every day waiting for an organ transplant. So my other passion is really promoting and advocating for organ donation. If you're not signed up to be an organ donor, please consider you, you are, your last act could be a legacy of hope and please sign up to be an organ donor. But a match of an organ is way more dependent on a lot of other factors other than just blood type. Blood type's a factor, but body size is a factor. If you are 6'4", and built like a football linebacker, you couldn't take a heart from me who's five six and not built like a football linebacker. And you need somebody who is close to body size in you. I that was my other fortunate thing is I have I had a normal body size and type and a fairly common blood type, which meant that my match came a little bit quicker. There are people who are O positive or O negative blood types who are universal donors, but not universal receivers who are unusual body sizes that wait for years to get their matching heart. And there are methods that they can use like uh, left or right ventricular assist devices, LVADs, RVADs, that can be used as a bridge to transplant. It's basically an external heart pump. They're not fun. And and they are they are either a destination therapy, which means you're not going to be eligible for a transplant, or they are bridges to transplant so that they can buy you a little more time for them to find the right heart for you. I was super fortunate. I went into the hospital right after the first of the year on in 2018, and I was transplanted January 30th into the 31st of January of uh, 2018. So I only had to wait about three weeks. Having a surgeon walk into your hospital room and tell you that they think that they found the perfect heart for you is surreal. It's uh, it's a feeling that I don't wish on anyone unnecessarily, but it is a feeling that if you need a heart transplant, if you need a new heart, it is all the feelings all at once. It is the one opportunity in your life. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there are more, but it is the one clear opportunity that I've had in my life where I've literally had every emotion on the planet at once. Grief, gratitude, fear, happiness, all of the things just kind of land all at the same time. Oh my gosh. I can imagine. I can appreciate what that kaleidoscope of emotions must have, must have felt like was, would, would you say gratitude outweighed fear at some level, or was, was fear pretty high up in the, the emotional set that you were dealing with? For me, fear was not the biggest emotion going on. I think gratitude and grief kind of played together for top priority because, you know, for, for me to get this gift of life, I know another family is grieving and, and that hit me deeply. 
and still hits me deeply. Every every anniversary that goes runs around. It's now I've just turned three in January, and uh, every anniversary, it it the the grief and the knowing that somebody is marking that anniversary with a completely different mindset as me that hits it hits really hard for me. That's um, really powerful. That hit me. And and one of the reasons I do what I do is that as I recovered, I wanted to honor the gift that I was given. I want to honor my donor by making this, these bonus years that I've been given count for something that we leave a legacy, he and I together. And that's all I know about my donor is I know he was a male that he and I together leave a legacy that will outlast us both. That's so powerful. That is so powerful that combined you are living and leaving a legacy together. That's something I never really considered. So I'm really glad you shared that with me. You now coming out of this, how is your, like, what are some restrictions that you have on yourself or that the doctors have placed on you? How is your living changed? I mean, I'm sure you have some constraints in place, maybe not. And, you know, how, how is your living your life changed as a result of the transplant? Well, that is, I'm going to answer that in two parts. Right after the the first year of after your transplant, you are at your most immunosuppressed. You are at your most at risk for something happening. They are working hard to kill your immune system because the reason that we're on immunosuppressants is because my body will always see my new heart as a foreign invader. And if it's, if my white blood cells see that my heart is there, they will attack it and try and kill it. That's called rejection. And that could kill me. So my job for the rest of my life is to keep my heart hidden from the rest of my body. And that happens through very, very precisely taken and precise dosages of immunosuppressant drugs. Wow. Um, so you have to hide your heart. Oh, my gosh. And so we do that by taking immunosuppressant drugs every 12 hours, like clockwork for the rest of our lives. I know what rejection looks like because right after my transplant, I had three open heart surgeries in the span of a week. After I had my transplant surgery that same night, they had to go back in after they had stitched me back up again. They had to go back in and deal with some internal internal bleeding. And then a week later, they had to go back in and deal with some more internal bleeding. So I've had three open heart surgeries in the span of a week. I've had both types of organ rejection, antibody level and cellular level rejection. The treatments for those are both different and a lot. I have been on extraordinarily high doses of prednisone to control the rejection. I had an infection and had to have antibiotic antibiotics injected into me three times a day for months. And so that first calendar year was rough. It was, we were very limited in what we could do. I had to mask up, which I know is familiar to everybody now, but, but it wasn't. And for the first year, I actually ended up having to wear a HEPA filter mask, which are those big masks with the filters on the side that like, if you're painting a car, you wear or a fighter pilot mask. I always think of them as fighter pilot masks. Um, So, so, and I had to wear that level of filtration mask so that if you had a cold that I wasn't going to get it. Once you make that first year milestone, and I actually 
got out a little early from my first year. I actually went to Disneyland in November of my first year because that was like my big, I, that's all I wanted to do was to go to Disneyland and do something fun and started hiking again in deserted places. Now that I'm two and now three years out, I actually have some white blood cells running around. So my, I am still immunosuppressed. I'm still an immunosuppressed person. I am COVID high risk. I am the person you are masking up for. Thank you. And And I will always be immunosuppressed. But as far as restrictions on what I can do and what I can't do, I can do almost anything I want to do. I can go back to, I could go back to work if I wanted to. I started, I have started my own nonprofit. So I work full time now and I hike. That is my exercise of choice. I love to hike. And I actually went to Pinnacles National Park a couple of weeks ago and over a three-day weekend hiked 20 miles, which is good for you. Actually over 20. And I usually am hiking five miles a day every day. And I love it. I love getting out in nature and seeing beautiful things. It's just feeds my soul. There are some food restrictions as a transplant patient. We can't eat anything raw or unpasteurized. So, so does that mean of, no sushi? No sushi. Oh. It is the saddest thing of my life right now. It's although, although I had some hope given to me because we hosted our foundation, hosted a webinar a couple of weeks ago, and we had the associate director of transplantation for Stanford on. And she actually said, if I know the source of my sushi, that I could eat it. So I, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I I have hope that was that was actually the one food raw oysters raw raw fish for sushi was I think the saddest thing the other things like I can't have I can't have beef tartare anymore but I don't care and I can't have bean sprouts, you know, any kind of dairy, risky or E. coli risky greens, like the baby uh, bean sprouts and that kind of thing. I can't have those. But again, eh, that's OK. But other than that, I can eat what I want to. I can. I'm still on a low sodium diet, as we all should be. But I don't have any restrictions. And something you said just a few minutes ago, too, like early on, it sounds like in your recovery or you you were out of recovery a little bit ahead of schedule. You went for a, a hike remotely and that that resonated with me because I think, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you went out there and went to some places far away from medical care and lived your life and saw nature that you love and probably with your family and what have you. And that's. That's courageous. I mean, it's a big step for, I'm a survivor. I'm not a, I'm not a transplant person, but I know in my own experience after my heart attack to go do those things, it it takes a bit of a leap of courage, but I also didn't want to be held down or be constrained by my condition. I'm not going to let it as, you know, steal someone's expression. I had the heart attack. It didn't have me and I'm not going to let it control me. And I pick up for what you're saying that you were quite a lot like that with your transplant recovery. Oh, for sure. I once I felt like I could get out and do things, that was pretty much all I wanted to do was to get out and do things. And living in Northern California, as we do, there are plenty of areas where there's no cell reception. And the first time that I went out somewhere with no cell reception, I got a little nervous because I thought, well, what happens if? And uh, and I visited the what if bus and then 
got myself right back off the what if bus. And we hiked around Mount Tam. And I think that day, that first day, I think I did seven or eight miles and got back to the car and burst into tears. I'll bet. Because the reality that I could do what pre-transplant, I I maybe could have walked a mile, maybe pre-transplant, and I would have been exhausted for the next day, that day and the next day. And to be able to hike eight miles over fairly rugged terrain and still have energy left and not be completely wiped out was nothing short of a miracle to me. It's still a miracle to me. That is is never lost on me. What a miracle it is that I can do pretty much anything I put my mind to doing. That's powerful. That's powerful. And, and what a gift and what an absolute gift. So keeping on that theme, how, what other gifts have you experienced as a result of this? I know these are circumstances that we don't wish upon ourselves, but we survive, we go through them, we press on in other ways, you know, you, you, you are able to do more physically. What other positive benefits have accrued as a result of your transplant? I think I, I think, I think anybody who has a near death experience of any sort, whether it's battling cancer or like you having a heart attack, like me having a transplant, if we don't come out on the other side, cherishing time and family and not sweating the small stuff on the regular basis, I mean, that's the best gift we can give ourselves is to cherish every single second. Doing laundry is a gift. It's, it's not anything to be thought as mundane or like everybody does it. Everybody can't do it. And <laughs> cooking dinner, I mean, all the things, all the, the little things that, that people consider to be chores, I don't. I, everything's, everything is a gift. Every little thing is a gift. Waking up, taking a breath, putting your feet on the ground, all of that is a gift. And it's not promised to everybody. Life isn't inevitable. And cherishing every single extra second that you get is is a gift, is, is how we all should live our lives. But I think for me personally, I can't imagine living life any other way. Yeah. For me, prior to my cardiac event, I... I tried to convince myself that I need to cherish every breath and no, no breath is guaranteed coming through the other side of it. I really feel that way. I can completely, what you said just completely resonated with me and the have tos of our lives switch to get tos, right? Mm -hmm. I have to do the laundry. No, I get to do the laundry and and it's very real. I can completely relate with what you were saying and I feel very much the same way. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. And it's, and it's yeah. given me time to figure out ways to give back to this community that has blessed me with the miracle of life. And so that's, you know, finding finding new and interesting ways to give back has become my life's mission right now. And and I'm so glad you we could segue there because what you're doing, you're doing some really cool stuff. And I'm excited to hear and to share what you're doing and, and various fronts. And it's pretty powerful work. So let's talk about the foundation that you started 
right about the time COVID set in, right? Yep. It's my COVID baby. We started, I started Heartfelt Health Foundation last year based on a fundraiser that I had in 2019. I had gone into my doctor's office uh, for a regular checkup for my transplant. And I popped into the social worker's office just to say, thank you. It was her last day. She was retiring and uh, her door was open. So I popped in to say, thank you for all the work that she had done for us over the last year and, and to wish her well on her next step of her adventure and came in on a conversation that I only now in retrospect, no, was just meant for me to overhear. And that was a conversation about a patient who was currently in hospital waiting for their heart transplant. And their transplant was being delayed. They, they were bumped down the list. There's numbers of priority or numerically prioritized one through seven, and their number had been bumped down because he couldn't afford the post-transplant housing expenses. And what most people don't realize is that when you have a heart transplant, there's a lot of things you've got to do. You've got to have a caregiver who's willing to be with you 24-7. If you're married, that's not a big deal. If you're not, that can be a big deal. You've got to meet the psychosocial criteria and you've got to financially be able, uh, able to afford what insurance won't cover. And most insurances at best only minimally cover the post-transplant housing. And in Northern California, that means you are having to relocate to either Silicon Valley or San Francisco. And both of those places are not cheap places to have to relocate to. Nope. So November of 2019, I ended up throwing together with a few weeks notice after the Kincaid fire up here, I threw together a fundraiser in my backyard and raised $12,000 under Kaiser's, which is my hospital, Kaiser's 501c3 umbrella. And that money actually paid for that particular patient's post-transplant housing. And we had some leftover for the next couple of patients. That's fantastic. $12,000? Yeah. in. A couple of with a couple of weeks effort, people really when they find out what the problem is, it really resonates with them. Inequity in housing is a huge hot button issue for all groups of people, but especially people who should be able to focus on their recovery from a hugely traumatic surgery and not how this might financially devastate them. So we started in 2020, we started uh, the paperwork process to get our own 501c3, and we're able to get that uh, designation last year and have hit the ground running and have been able to assist several patients. We have one in hospital right now who's currently waiting for his transplant, who we will be housing post-transplant. He's coming in with zero insurance to cover his post-transplant housing. So we'll be able to pay for it in total for him. And we also, Fantastic. Help, we also help the family source the right kind of housing for them. And that has become super clear in the age of COVID that the shared housing concept that a lot of hospitals have with the Ronald McDonald type format of housing, just to give you, I'm not calling out Ronald McDonald houses because they're fantastic. But that shared housing concept 
with, you know, private bedrooms, but shared kitchens and shared living rooms, when you are at your most immunosuppressed means that to go get a snack, you're having to go mask up to go watch television, you're having to go mask up. So we're helping each patient based on their family situation, we're helping them source the right kind of housing that really suits their unique individual purposes. So for example, we have clients who are parents and their adult children are their caregivers. A one-bedroom, one-bed kind of situation is not going to work for them because of the fact that they have adult kids who need their own space to sleep. Husband and wife situations, that's a different situation. A one-bedroom kind of place will work perfectly for them. We've had clients who don't want a kitchen because they aren't cooks and that doesn't feel like home to them. And a lot of times post-transplant, your sense of smell is heightened and Things can make you, smells can make you instantly nauseous. And this was true for this particular family. And so we moved them into more of a hotel setting that didn't have that a microwave and a little fridge and no cooking smells. (laughs) And so we are able to tailor every patient's adventure. I hate the word journey. So I think journey just implies this kind of lovely, easy path. And it's never that way. So I call it an adventure because that's what it is. You never know what's around the corner. And we tailor everybody's transplant adventure so that they can focus on recovery and not focus on the finances or how this is going to play out for them. I can help ease that transition and get them transition towards home in a financially more safe place. I mean, that's so caring and compassionate. It just is mind blowing. Do you know, like, like how many people, I mean, if heartfelt help could help everybody say in the Bay area, like how many, I mean, we're, we're talking astronomical numbers probably, but that you would like to be able to help. I'm sure. We would like to be able to say yes to every transplant, solid organ transplant recipient in Northern California. That's our goal. Right now, we're saying yes to heart transplant patients, and we're considering other solid organ transplants. We just don't have the funding for yet for the expansion that we'd like, but we're working on it. And we're hopeful that this need resonates deeply with enough people and companies that they are willing to partner with us to help along um, this path to making sure that no one who is facing an organ transplant has to worry about where they're going to relocate to. Because as remember, they still have to pay for wherever their house is. If they live in, you know, for me, if you live in Sonoma County and your transplant facilities in Palo Alto, you got to maintain your house here while you're paying for three months of residency somewhere else. That mortgage is not going to pay itself, right? Nope. Nope. And you say three months, you would be Um, three months in A minimum of one. It's more typically three and sometimes longer than that. We actually have a client we are looking for funding for right now who lives in a state that doesn't have its own transplant facility. So he has to relocate to San Francisco for what will probably be a year because he has to get here in order to be listed because he lives too far away. His state that he lives in is too far away for him to get the call for transplant and get here in time. So he has to be here in order to be listed and he will have to stay 
for a significantly longer period of time, maybe as much as six months or so after his transplant. So we're conservatively estimating that his relocation will be for a full year. And that presents a whole bunch of problems. Finances are a huge part of it, but actually the caregiver part is another huge part of it because you're asking someone to say goodbye to their life in wherever state they are for a year. And that's a big ask. Mm. It's one thing to ask somebody to say goodbye to their life for a couple of months. That's that's still a big ask, but it's not a a life ending ask. But right. a year that's that's a big ask. That is a huge ask. And for you, your your top priority right now in early 2021 is is it raising funds? Is it awareness? Is it reaching into the transplant community? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes to all of those and probably some others, but yes, I, we are, we are working towards, we're working towards raising awareness for the problem because if people don't know the problem exists, they don't know how to address it. So right. towards that end, the foundation has hosted a webinar and, and we are looking towards hosting more webinars, which are not really fundraisers, but they are awareness builders. And Getting out there and talking to the transplant community, one of the hopes I have is to have heart-to-heart conversations with other transplant survivors to show people who are pre-transplant that you can live a full and thriving life after transplant. And, and you, are, you are living proof of that, by the way. Thank you. I, I try. I don't want to waste. I don't want to waste a second. And, and even with the limitations of all that we've all been through this year, I don't think we have. I don't think I have. I've worked very hard to get out and hike and see new things in nature. I'm lucky nature just fills my soul. So getting out and hiking through a pasture or up a mountain, that's, that's pretty much all I need. I don't need glitz and glamour. I just need... I just need some nature. <laughs> <laughs> nature heals. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's the needs that you all have. I say you, the transplant community for this care and recuperation and this compassion. So it's, it's wonderful that you've jumped in there and are solving that riddle. And I hope that if people listening to this will please, if you're so inspired to go visit the website, get in touch with Denise, you get in touch with me and I can connect you to to her, to her foundation. So you can help in any way, in any capacity, if you are so inspired, right? I mean, is there, Denise, any, anything else? And then just like that, and unbeknownst to this aspiring podcaster at the time, my fledgling podcast was beset by technical difficulties. A little gremlin had hacked its way into our recording. In the final few minutes of our conversation, we sounded like two robots talking to each other underwater. My cutoff question to her was what we can do to help support her foundation. And she said that one of the best things people can do right now to get involved is to follow Heartfelt Help Foundation on social media, such as Instagram and Facebook. We talked a little more about her warrior mentality, and she said that it's okay if assuming a warrior mentality may seem overwhelming, so you can take that warrior mentality in baby steps. Try your best for 60 seconds, then take a break. It's all right to have a pity party, but you cannot live there, she advises. I left our conversation feeling inspired by Denise's passion and big new heart. 
She is thriving and living life on her terms and creating a wonderful solution for transplant patients in need through her foundation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profound Awesomeness. We appreciate you being here. Make sure to listen to future episodes and please subscribe to Profound Awesomeness wherever you download your podcasts.